Okay. All right, so good evening. The, uh, last week we did Haggai and Zechariah, the 6th century BCE prophets, and the whole setting of the return to Zion and the rebuilding of the second temple. Tonight we deal with two of, well, two of the last prophets. Haggai and Zechariah are among the last ones also, and it's actually our very last shiur on the books of the prophets. Next week we're up to Psalms. Crazy stuff. So we've really been marching since last, whatever, October, meaning a year ago, marching right on through. And we started with Joshua, and we're about to complete the prophets, the Nevi'im section of the Bible. And then, again, Ketuvim begin next next Wednesday at this time. So the book of Joel, I had to really think about where to put him in this course. This was one of my great struggles in my preparations over the summer. Where does he go? And the problem, with, it's not a problem with him, it's our problem. We have no idea when he lived. Ibn Ezra, one of the great commentators of all time, living in the 12th century, quotes various Midrashim, as do other commentators. And he says there's really no text basis for any of these things. We just don't know when he lived. And there's no good... Did you say Ezra? Joel. Oh, no, Ezra lived in the 12th century? Ibn Ezra. Abraham Ibn Ezra. Oh, Abraham Ibn Ezra. Yeah, oh, okay. not to be confused with the Ezra, who we talked right, about right, right. last week, who lived in the 5th century BCE. Yeah, yeah right. different, different person. Yeah, right. And so, although presumably the namesake of Ibn Ezra's family line. Fun fact, as long as you're mentioning it, if you're a Gabai, and you have to call it, what does Ibn mean? It's not Evan. Sometimes yeshiva students get this wrong. You look at the Hebrew, so you see Aleph Bet Nun, you think it's Evan, which means rock. It's not, it's not Evan, right? It's Eben. So it's Abraham, Eben, Ezra. So if you were calling him to the Torah, you'd say, Yamod, Moreno, Harav, all the honorifics you want, and he deserves every last one of them. Abraham, Ben? Ezra. So the answer is, you would call him, ride with this, ride with this all you guys. you would call him Rav Abraham, Ben, Meir, Eben, Ezra. His father's name was Meir, and Eben, Ezra was his last name, kind of like Ezra's son. It was a family name. Jews of Spain had, had family names, as opposed to Jews of Eastern Europe who didn't get family names until way later on in history. So he was, so the original founder of the family presumably was named Ezra. That's where it came from. And so his son became Ibn Ezra. And then the family adopted that as their last name. But his real name was Abraham Ben Meir Ibn Ezra. Cool fact. Very few people know, but he writes about it in his, in his writings. But again, most people just assume his father's name must have been Ezra. Getting back to the book of Joel. So I didn't know quite where to put him. So I decided this is the week where he's going to go. And the reason why I put him here is because I believe he actually belongs this week. Okay, that was a good reason to decide that. And I have to tell you why I believe that. The book has two halves. The whole thing is four chapters long. As we've discussed, the so-called minor prophets are short books. That's why they're called minor in scholarship. It doesn't mean that they're lesser prophets or less important. It just means the major prophets have lots of chapters. And the minor prophets have a few chapters So the book of Joel is like that. There are four chapters in the whole book. And it has two halves. Chapters 1 and 2 is one half. And chapters 3 and 4 is the other half. Chapters 1 and 2 are about a locust plague that struck during Joel's lifetime. The prophet Joel and his generation witnessed a terrible, catastrophic locust plague, which, of course, it's bad wherever you get it. It was was bad in Israel. If you want to see a really cool... You know the magazine, the journal that's called National Geographic? Well, in 1915, the name of the thing was still called National Geographic Magazine. The word magazine was part of the title. And if you look up, I have a photocopy of the thing. I went down to the YU library basement years ago, tracking down this particular article. It was of a a guy who lived in England who came to Israel, or back then it wasn't even called Israel officially, it was 1915, in anticipation of a locust plague. 
And he took pictures, you know, fig tree before, fig tree after. Here are pictures of locusts and all that stuff, which wreaked horrible devastation in Israel. You know, they had some techniques of trying to control the plague, but not nearly enough to ward it off. It was really, really awful. Then in the back, he has some recipes for cooking locusts. His view is that female locusts carrying eggs, he thought were the yummiest of them all. And it's a really interesting article with all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that he demonstrates in this article, I don't know if National Geographic would still publish articles quite like this, is the unbelievable accuracy that Joel describes a locust plague. That Joel is describing in perfect detail what a locust plague is like. And he just shows with pictures and he goes word by word through the book of Joel, the first two chapters. And he just shows an uncanny correspondence. Anybody who sees the locust plague, he knew exactly what he was seeing. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is a messianic prophecy. Many elements sound like any old messianic prophecy that you would find in any prophetic book. Enemy nations will attack, God will beat them up, Israel will be redeemed, prosperity, peace in the end, all those good things. That's the easy part. That's the whole book. So we're done. Let's move on to Malachi. Well, maybe not yet. (laughs) The curious part is how to try to pin down when he lived. Because after all, a locust plague can occur any time, and there are famines sometimes in Tanakh, but you can't necessarily link Joel's locust plague to any of those famines. It might be one of them, but it might not be. So our commentators in Midrashim struggle. There are some clues that already medieval commentators picked up on that modern scholarship are into. And I'll show you a couple of them. This is how you have to tease out dating. It's the hardest of the 12 prophets, the hardest of any of the prophets to date. Many of them are dated. They say, so-and-so is prophet in the, during the reigns of whoever, then it's easy. Some of them, it doesn't say that, but you can still pretty much figure it out from the content when it must have been. Locust play could be anywhere. So here are the little clues that they use. In source number one, gird yourselves and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for offering and libation are withheld from the house of your God. Meaning, since there's a famine because of the locust plague, you don't have any wine available. So if you're trying to date the book, what can you say from this one sentence? If you're trying to pin, if you're trying to narrow down the dating for the book, what I can tell you is that a temple is standing. Right? That's the way you gotta do this stuff. In other words, the, this, is, this is what scholarship tries to do. You try to tease out whatever clues you can get from these things. The fact that the temple service is halted because of the famine means that at least there's a temple that should have had a service. Okay. So that means that Joel isn't saying this between 586 and 516. 586 is when the first temple was destroyed. And 516 is when the second temple was completed. So either Joel is pre-586 or he's post-516. All right, that doesn't narrow it down a lot. But it's something, hey, we're better off than we were five minutes ago. Okay, so then another thing we could look at is source number two. In Joel's prophecy of redemption... He says, for lo, in those days and in that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, Egypt shall be a desolation and a dome, a desolate waste because of the outrage to the people of Judah in whose land they shed the blood of the innocent. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem throughout the ages. What you could say here is that he's referring to the exile of the south. And that the point is, those people who contributed toward that exile, Egypt and Edom, they are going down. But Judah's fortunes will be restored. They will return. It sounds like this is around the time of the first temple's destruction. 
Because if he's predicting the restoration of the southern kingdom, that means that the, re- the southern kingdom is out of business, or at least about to go out of business. So that's another clue that scholars try to use to date Joel. So that really narrows it down. That means that he either lives toward the very end of the first temple period, or at the very beginning of the second temple period. Because we're talking about the exile of Yehudah. We're talking about the exile of the south. We can even get one other clue from this passage. Sorry, Elias. Is the, is the term of Shorsane is Be'ach used any place else? No, he, he talks about Kohanan and Shorsane is Be'ach. It's a rather strange term. I would have to, offhand, I don't know. I need to, I need to look it up. It's certainly unusual, but I, can't, I don't know if it's unique to this book or not that I would have to check. It certainly isn't Chomish. No, not like this. We have, we have to. We have, I have to. I have to look around. It's, this is a solvable problem, but I just can't solve it on my feet. I need to. I need. I need resources. Bar-Lan. But, but yeah, Barilan concordance. Even an old-fashioned concordance can really help you with this one. Although, yeah, I prefer the Barilan. Okay. So another thing that you could tease out of this, since it says Edom will be destroyed, what you now know is Edom is not yet destroyed. <laughs> right. This is helpful. Because the prophet Malachi, in source number three, who's traditionally he's the last prophet, he's the second prophet of tonight, but he's the last prophet of all time, Malachi in source three says, I have rejected Esav, I have made his hills a desolation, his territory a home for beasts of the desert. By the time of Malachi, the last prophet, Edom has been destroyed. That means that Joel came before Malachi. Because he's saying that Adam will be destroyed. See, this is what we're, we're desperate. I mean, look what we're picking at here to try to narrow down the dates. But that's, this is what scholarship does. Scholarship tries to get any clue that it can and try to date it either internally. Okay, a, te- a temple is standing. It seems to be very near the destruction of the first temple. And it's before Malachi, who's definitely second temple. So what we end up getting is that either Joel is prophesying immediately preceding the destruction of the first temple, or the very beginning of the second temple period. Really, those are our, those are our leading options. Now, this is not just an academic exercise. I mean, it's fun to try to pin these things down. I have to admit, I, I, I enjoyed going through this exercise back in the day also. But it's not about an academic exercise. It's about prophets don't speak in the abstract. Prophets are speaking to real people in real times. Much of our course has been about that. Right? When you know the period, you can really understand the prophet is a living human being talking to other living human beings. And you can appreciate the eternal messages when you understand the contextual messages. So when did Joel live? If Joel lived toward the end of the, the destruction of the temple, we might be able to truly appreciate some of the important features of his book. And that's what we're going to get to now. If you look at source four, we're now going to look at several selected texts from the book of Joel. But bear in mind that he lives toward the end of the period of prophecy and right around the time of the destruction. Here goes. The word of the Lord, source four, the word of the Lord that came to Yoel, son of Pituel. Listen to this, O elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has the like of this happened in your days or in the, the days of your fathers? What the cutter has left, the locust has devoured. What the locust has left, the grub has devoured. And what the grub has left, the hopper has devoured. There are different ways of translating this. Four, either species of locust in play or four stages of the development of a locust. Be that as it may. He's saying that there's this unbelievable, unprecedented plague here and we have a famine as a consequence of these locusts. And he says, solemnize a fast. Solemnize a fast. 
Proclaim an assembly, gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, in the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It shall come like havoc from Shaddai. For food is cut off before our very eyes, and joy and gladness from the house of our God. He's describing in vivid detail, and again, if you go through the first two chapters, it's really vivid and really detailed, how these locusts are crawling in through the windows, and they're devouring everything and munching away, and it's total desolation. And he's describing a plague that you and I could see if we were standing next to him. He's not predicting that a plague will occur. Right? You don't need to be a prophet to see this. In fact, what's really interesting about Joel's prophecy is that he doesn't need to be a prophet at all to say this. He could have been a rabbi. There is nothing specifically prophet-like about his descriptions. You and I could have said that stuff. You and I could describe a locust plague. You and I could describe the famine. You and I could even say, okay, everybody, let's repent or pray to God. There's nothing specific to prophecy here. He's not predicting something off in the future. God hasn't revealed anything to him. And he's not even giving an unusual solution to a problem. He's just giving what we would think of as a typical religious response to any catastrophe. And that brings us to an incredible statistic about what he's doing here. This is the only time in all of the prophetic corpus, all of the books of the prophets, I like statistics that involve the word only, because usually that's meaningful. This is the only time that a prophet ever describes a catastrophe that he doesn't say it's because we've sinned or because of a specific thing. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say it's because of your idolatry or your immorality or this and that or you're making too many alliances with pagan enemies or something. It's the only time. That's incredible. Suddenly the statistics, our stock just went up for Joel here. In other words, he's describing a normal sort of situation. And what we're expecting, having seen so many prophets, okay, there's a locust plague, and it's because of this and that sin, repent, God has told me. Or, I'm predicting a locust plague because I can do that sort of thing because God revealed it to me. That automatically sounds very prophetic. Here it is absolutely what you and I could do. There's no claim that God gave him privileged knowledge about what it's about, what the cause is. And so my teacher, Rabbi Shalom Karmi at Yeshiva University, notices this fact also. And he quotes his teacher, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who is many of our teacher, even if it's indirect, in many of our cases. For him, it was more direct. Rabbi Karmi says that this is Rabbi Solo- one of Rabbi Soloveitchik's big things. He talked about it most dramatically in his 1956 lecture, which became known as Kol Dodi Dofeik, Hark, My Beloved Knocks. 1956, up at Yeshiva University, he gave a lecture talking about the Holocaust and the recent the recent Holocaust then and the recent founding of the State of Israel. So he, unlike, I can't believe any other rabbi thought otherwise, but unlike several other prominent rabbis of that time who actually explained to their people why the Holocaust happened. Right? It's because of the Zionists. It's because of the anti-Zionists. It's because of assimilation. I find all of these things utterly appalling with all due respect to these rabbis. How in the world can they say why God does something like that? Right? And yet, there were very prominent rabbis saying things like that. So Rabbi Soloveitchik gets up to his podium, gives a lecture, and he says, it's utterly foolish to try to guess God's mind on this one. There's no way we could possibly know. And the Jewish response, he argues that the Jewish response, even though obviously it's only one of several, but the proper one as far as he is concerned, is never to ask why something happened, because you can't know. 
What you can ask is, given that an unfathomable and unthinkable thing happened, what should we do? I haven't been around here that long, but those people who have heard Rabbi Luchstein for many years, also a student of Rabbi Soloveitchik, have heard him say that many times. I've already heard him say it several times, and I've only been here for a year and a half. And I'm sure some people who have been here for a long time have heard him say that many times. Right? It's a classic teaching of Rabbi Soloveitchik, that we never ask, why did it happen? We could ask it, but we're wasting our time, and we're just going to get frustrated. He says the proper question is, given that something that we can't figure out happened, what should we do in response? How can we improve ourselves? How can we improve our community? How can we build on the, in the wake of what happened? So, for example, Rav Soloveitchik never would have said, the Holocaust happened so that we could have the state of Israel. As some people do. I find that, again, shocking. Right? But all the same, some people have said that. Rav Soloveitchik is saying, given that the Holocaust happened, and we have no clue why, we have an obligation to the state of Israel. And we have to do everything we can to build it up. That was the one-line summary of an incredibly eloquent and obviously lengthier address that he gave. And you can read it in English, Hebrew or English. In Hebrew, it's called Kol Dodido Fake. In English, officially, it's Hark, My Beloved Knox, although, of course, they're different, you know, depending on the publisher and the translator, they came up with different titles. But it's all Kol Dodido Fake. It's, it's based on the, the knock of history, that we have an opportunity, we need to do something. Well, Rabbi Karmi quotes Rabbi Soloveitchik on this point, and he says, that's what the prophet Yoel is doing here. He's not saying repent because I know why it happened. He's saying, given that we have a plague, we have a spiritual opportunity to grow. Now, this is really much more like Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach as opposed to the standard prophetic approach, which is, I actually can tell you why something happened because God told me. Rabbi Soloveitchik is arguing, when you don't have God telling you things, you cannot know. So usually prophets can say, well, I know, I'm a prophet. Not Joel. Joel is speaking as uh, really like a rabbi. And that's an amazing, amazing statistic about, about Yoel. Here's another thing about him. The sages use Yoel's prophecies as a model for their prophecy, for their prayers. If you go down to source number six, they talk about whenever there's a drought. So you bring the rabbis of the community get together and they have a fasting and repentance. And if the drought persists, then it just gets more and more serious as time goes on. Finally, in source six, it says, The elder among them addresses them with words of admonition to repentance. Thus, our brethren, Scripture does not say of the people of Ninveh, this is the Jonah story, and God saw their sackcloth and their fasting, but as God saw their works, they, that they turned from evil way, their evil way. In other words, they repented. They didn't just go through the external motions. They were sincere. And in the prophets, it is said, rend your heart and not your garments. And that's from the prophet Joel. So they see Joel as a model of repentance, of rabbinic repentance. Here's a catastrophe. There's a plague. There's famine. We have no food. We have no clue why this happened. But that's the way that it is. Now we have to repent. So let's read actually source 5 now, which is where that passage comes from, going, going up. They have the appearance of horses, referring to the locusts. They gallop just like steeds, with a clatter as of chariots. They, are, they bound on the hilltops, with a noise like blazing fire consuming straw, like an enormous horde arrayed for battle. Peoples tremble before them, all faces turn ashen. They rush like warriors, they scale a wall like fighters. Each keeps to his own track, their paths never cross. Yet even now, says the Lord, turn back to me with all of your hearts, with fasting, weeping, and lamenting. Rend your hearts rather than your garments, and turn back to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, and renouncing punishment. 
Who knows? But he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind for meal offering and drink offering to the Lord your God. Who knows? Maybe it will work. <laughs> Prophets usually speak with a little more certainty. Right? It couldn't hurt. That's exactly... The prophet Joel is speaking like a rabbi. He's not speaking like a prophet. He's speaking like what a religious leader who doesn't have privileged information would say. We need to repent. We need to pray. I can't make you any guarantees. And some rabbis try to make guarantees also, but those are the ones you really want to stay away from. I know we don't know what God is going to do. Who knows? Our job is to do our job and then hope that God will help us out and get rid of this plague. There's no promise at all of anything. That's an amazing prophecy. And now let's go back to the dating of the book. Let's say Joel lives right around the time of the destruction of the first temple. It could be, you know, we, we, we'll never know why did prophecies stop. We'll never know. There are different theories, but one theory that seems to be at least part of the story is that the destruction of the first temple crippled prophecy somehow. Don't know how. I was talking to somebody before we started tonight. You know, the disappearance of the ark might have something to do with it. The loss of God's overt presence may have had something to do with it. Not clear. Even the loss of the monarchy might have had something to do with it. Still not sure. All I can tell you is, shortly after the destruction of the first temple, prophecy is on the downswing, and within the first or second generation of the second temple period, it becomes extinct. Malachi is the last of the prophets. Why that is so, not clear. But what might be happening here is that Joel might be realizing this and saying, oh man, prophecy is going to come to an end. There's going to come a point where religious leadership won't be prophets. What will it be? We'll have to be sages and scholars and religious leaders. Well, what will they do? They don't know what God thinks. They won't be able to come to the people like all of our prophetic forebears who said, okay, this earthquake happened because of this or that. Or if you don't shape up your morality, the Assyrians are going to come. What are non-prophets going to do? Joel is providing a model for that. He's saying, I have to just teach people how to respond religiously, even if they're not prophets. Teach them to pray, teach them to repent, teach them to introspect, not explain why things happen. He's not explaining why this plague took place, nor is he guaranteeing that the plague is going to stop. He's saying we have to do our job. There's another statistic about Joel. The whole book is just 73 verses, and scholars identify ballpark 25 of those verses as near-carbon copies of earlier books, earlier prophetic books. That's a lot. If one-third of the book is, quote-unquote, unoriginal, that's a way of saying he's functioning very much like a rabbinic scholar. He's going through the sacred texts and he's quoting them. And he's using them for his purposes. Which, of course, the whole history of rabbinic scholarship, that's what it does. It takes the sacred texts, it selectively quotes the ones that it needs for its purposes, and it teaches religious values and lessons. The prophet Joel is functioning like a proto-rabbi. He turns the sacred texts as his authority. He speaks in terms of introspection and repentance. He doesn't claim any certain knowledge of of God's mind. He just tells people they need to react properly. Dating Joel around the time of the destruction of the temple when prophecy is on the decline makes perfect sense. All of a sudden the dating opens up why Joel is here. Joel is the first one who seems to be conscious of maybe prophecy is on its way out. And if prophecy is on its way out, well, we still have the Jewish people to take care of. How are we going to take care of them? 
The answer is we have to teach them how to live religiously without having prophecy. We've been spoiled. You know, prophecy, as far as Tanakh is concerned, started with Adam Harishon, with Adam, and goes all the way down to Malachi. And then it just stops. And that's the end of prophecy. Well, what are we going to do for the next 2,500 plus years? The answer is what we've been doing. But the person more than anybody who paved that way was the prophet Joel. You can appreciate source number seven. I was just talking to somebody. I didn't realize that it was even going to be in the source sheet. What great anticipation by me. Great job. <laughs> I love when that happens. I don't, I, you know, I spent a lot of time on these source sheets, but I don't necessarily remember which ones are going to be there until I show up here. You know, I, I look, I, you know, I look over my notes much more than the source sheets. So in the tractate Yoma, the Talmud describes that there are five things that were in the first temple that are not in the second. Here we go in source seven. In five things, the first sanctuary differed from the second. The Ark, the Ark cover, the Kruvim, the fire, the Shekhinah, the Holy Spirit of prophecy, and the Urim Vitumim. By the way, does anybody know how to count to five? <laughs> All right, how many things did you just read? Seven, yeah, pretty weird. So the sages knew how to count to, don't worry. <laughs> they knew how to count to five. Uh, the Ark, the Ark cover, and Kruvim are one unit. That's the Ark, right? The Ark includes the ark, the box part, its cover, and the kruvim, the angelic figures that are on top of the, on top of the Aaron. That's how they're counting. That's, that's why you thought there were seven, but that, they meant, that's all one thing. Then the fire, meaning the fire that came from heaven and burned in the temple, the shekhinah, the God's manifest presence, the Holy Spirit of prophecy, and the urim vitumim, the oracle that the high priest used to wear that somehow communicated messages. What matters for our purposes is the Holy Spirit of prophecy one. In other words, our sages understood that the second temple, while it was there, was crippled. And it wasn't just missing, I don't know, a certain color of paint that they had in the first temple. It's missing what makes the temple a temple. This is, these are the things, this is what it's all about. The temple is the home that houses the ark. The ark is the most important thing in there. It's not the temple that's important, it's the ark that is important. If the ark isn't there, and God's manifest presence isn't there, and there's no prophecy going on, that means that the second temple is, is like a shell. Right? As important as it was, but it's still, at the end of the day, an empty shell. It's meaningless. It's not meaningless, but, it, but it's, lo- it's lost. The, the whole purpose of its vitality is gone. Yeah, Miriam? So why don't we pray for the restoration or the recovery or the discovery of the ark? Indiana Jones thought the same thing. And it's, it's, uh, there's no question that, you know, we hope that the ark will come back when the third temple is built and the ark will be in its proper rightful place. I don't know how any of this is going to work, but I would love, I would love for, I, I would love for it to work, right? You know, however, however this is going to go down. That, I can't answer the hows. I can just tell you that I imagine that most people, when they pray for the restoration of the temple, are praying for the restoration of the original temple model rather than just having a building there. Or at least that's what we should be praying for. So your point is, well, to us, the temple is a unit, which includes the ark. And in fact, the ark is the most important thing, I see. Yeah, um, Rabbi, um, Sir. is it definite that uh, a definite Jewish belief that the third temple will be built? I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty definite. I can't speak for all Jews everywhere, but it's a pretty right, basic foundational belief. Really? Uh, because... Um, a very highly respected rabbi speaking here, Rabbi Berman, actually said 
It's it's questionable that you know from uh, it, it's it's questionable as as to whether it, it, it definitely will be built or it will not be whether it's a you know a principle of Jewish belief. I wouldn't call it a principle of Jewish belief, but I would say that we pray for it all the time. Yeah, we pray for so it. if you're praying for it, that means that it's built into the system that we expect that it will return. That's what I'm saying. We pray for it quite regularly. Right, right, right. 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 So I'll have to talk to Rabbi Bergman about what he had in mind. But all I can tell you is that the, the basic party line, which is you know hardwired into our prayers, is that yes, we do pray for the restoration of the temple. Yeah, we do. So, yeah. And Rabbi Berman knows that. I'm sure he has. A, I'm sure he has a good explanation for all of these things. Yeah. yeah. These five things were in the first temple, but not in the second. That is correct. That's what the Talmudic passage is saying. In other words, that the second temple was severely crippled. It wasn't meaningless, but it was severely crippled. So, getting back to to Joel here, if he's anticipating, sorry, Beverly, let me just finish the sentence and then I'll, I'll jump right over to you. If he's anticipating the end of prophecy, then all of his language and the way that he presents the locust plague makes perfect, perfect, perfect sense. Yeah, Beverly? I was going to ask, is it theoretical to think that somebody could build the ark in the second, when the second temple was built? You can't build a street. You can build, you can make another box with gold and wood. What you're missing are the tablets. <laughs> right. That's what matters. Theoretically, an artist, you could, you could have any... Yeah, the, I mean, again, you have to speculate what the Kruvim looked like, and there are a bunch of things you'd have to speculate about, but at least you can come up with a model. Go to pic, There are picture books that do that for you, and, and you can imagine an artist actually taking materials. It would be very costly with all that gold, but all the same, it can be done, right? But the tablets are what matter. In other words, the, the, the divine tablets of the, of the Ten Commandments, that's what makes that go around. Right, so bottom line is we're missing it. It's very upsetting. And going back to Miriam's question, I imagine when people pray for the restoration of the temple, we want the whole deal. We don't just want another building over there. All right, so, and now you can appreciate the very first verse in Joel's prophecy of redemption. He says something that is pretty sweeping and it's pretty remarkable, actually, in source number eight. After that, after God undoes the locust plague in our time, he says, that was what the end of chapter two was about, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Everybody gets to be a prophet, men, women, children. Now, that's a pretty sweeping kind of thing. Right? Even if we imagine widespread prophecy in the Messianic era, which could be, I still don't imagine everybody being a prophet. It's like this is Moshe Rabbeinu's dream back in the day. Moshe Rabbeinu said, oh, I wish everybody could just be a prophet already. That would be fantastic. Right? So here Joel is actually prophesying that the Messianic era will be replete with prophecy. Everybody gets to be a prophet. And again, if he's envisioning that prophecy is about to die, what he's saying is, okay, our strategy for the next X number of years prior to the redemption is proper religious reaction to catastrophe when it happens, even though we don't know. Study of sacred texts rather than having prophets telling us what God wants. We have no choice. But in the future, everybody will be a prophet. So Joel is actually... Oh, well, we're always going to study sacred texts. What would we do without them? But all the same, life no doubt is different when you have sacred texts versus if you have live prophecy. There was one great thinker of the, in, the, in the 19th century. His name was Rav Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin. You know, the standard story was a Litvak who grew up as a, as a yeshiva student and then became a chassid. So he was another one of these very interesting figures who was out there. His name was Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin. So he speculated, among other things, going to Miriam's question, 
that back in the days, in the first temple period, when there were prophets, let's say you and I, we want to know what God wants of us. And there are scholars of Torah out there, proto-rabbis, and there are prophets. Who would you go to? If you want to know what God thinks. Do you go to somebody who's using sacred texts and analyzing them and using his best judgment? Or do you go to somebody who says, oh, God told me this and that? You're too good, Sherry. But, but he surmises that most people would have gone with the certainty. And he says that in a certain sense, the rabbinate was crippled the whole biblical period. You couldn't have rabbis doing anything useful because people who actually wanted to know God's word would turn to the prophets. Again, he's just making this up. We don't have any record of any of this stuff, right? But he's, he's trying to create a conceptual model that the rabbinate, in a certain sense, needed prophecy to stop. Because that enabled it to study the text and, and develop precedents because now people needed to turn to them for precedents. Because before that, just go to the prophet. Oh, what does God want? Hang on, red phone. And it's a whole, not that prophecy worked that way, but all the same, he's, he's creating a conceptual model. So Yoel, this prophet over here, Joel, living at the time of the destruction of the temple, if the speculation is correct, it's based on speculation that he does know or is somewhat wary that prophecy is on its way out, he is the one who's paving the way for an age of non-prophecy. He's teaching us how to live religiously. Yeah, Sue? Uh, if he's not really prophesying, he's just describing, why is he designated? I mean, he didn't call himself a prophet. Why is he defined as a prophet? Excellent question. So, what matters in prophecy isn't that you see the future. What matters in prophecy is that God somehow communicates you, visionary words, however it goes, and you convey that to other people. But the nature of... So God conveyed this message to Yoel. But God gave Yoel a language that sounds like somebody who's not a prophet. At least for the first two chapters. The last two chapters, when he starts saying that there's going to be widespread prophecy in the future, that sounds like regular prophecy already. In other words, you, and you and I can make these things up, but he is speaking with God's voice. What matters is how God conveyed to Yoel how to relate to the locust plague and how to convey that to the people. Namely, don't sound like a regular prophet. God revealed himself to Yoel that way. To give the language of how to teach the people to live in an age past prophecy, Ashari. So it's interesting what you just said about Yoel because uh, in terms of what I was thinking, because prophecy ultimately has to be grounded in text. Why? Because how else are they going to articulate what God has spoken to them? Because they could articulate any which way, which could be, uh, have uh, meaning in a Jewish context, but mm-hmm. could also lead to uh, offshoots, shall we say, whether it's another religion, Fine. sect, or whatever. So I think it's really a combination of both that are necessary. You have to know your text before you can articulate anything to in, in a way that the individuals will understand. That's not true at all. I mean, that's simply not true. I disagree. Prophets spoke from God. He didn't need a text. He was a prophet. Right. I think what Sherry's trying to say is that they need to be able to communicate words more than text. Whatever God is You're both right. I'm being such a good rabbi. But, but you, really are, you, really are both, you really are both right. In other words, prophets need to be able to convey their ethereal ideas into words, into words. But Elias is certainly right that earlier prophets didn't work off of text at all. They were taking their visions straight from God and conveying words. Yoel, however, taking his visionary experience is also drawing from the works of earlier prophets. In other words, he's more of a hybrid 
of those two. Okay, so that all being said, we now turn to the very last of all the prophets, Malachi. We don't know for sure that Malachi is the last prophet for a bunch of reasons. The fact that he happens to be the last one positioned in the book of the 12 prophets doesn't prove chronological sequence because the book is simply not arranged necessarily in chronological sequence. It's also tradition that says that there is no more prophecy after him. In other words, there's no text that says, thus ends prophecy. Unless you're a believer in Muhammad. I'm still in the prophets and that's after me no more. Okay, fair enough. But Jewish tradition is, the, is what insists that there is no more prophecy after Malachi, that he was the very, until, until the Messianic era, that he would be the last of the prophets, you know, through now until, until the Messiah comes. When you read Malachi, unlike his, his earlier contemporaries, Haggai and Zechariah, Haggai and Zechariah lived, and we talked about this last week, in an age where they felt pulsating potential. They felt that Mashiach could come right today. Zerubbabel could become the messianic king. There could be a full restoration. God's presence will be manifest again. This all really could happen tomorrow. They felt such a living reality of, of potential. You read Malachi and get ready to cry. You don't feel any potential of anything. You feel that the people are depressed. You feel that there's no imminent hope. And you hear how he quotes the people. He uses this, this format of where he quotes, you say this, but God says that. So if you just open up how the book starts in source 9, just so you get a sense of that. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have shown you love, said the Lord. So God says, I love you. But you ask, how have you shown us love? Now, as he's setting up, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily saying this lion. It just means in general, the people of Israel feel very unloved at this time by God. So they say, how have you shown us love? After all, declares the Lord. Esav is Jacob's brother. My, oh my, good timing for the Haftarah of the week, right? You'll read this again on Shabbat. Good timing. Okay, in the meantime, I didn't mean to do it that way, but hey, it's nice when it works out. Esav is Jacob's brother, and yet I have accepted Jacob and I have rejected Esav. I have made his hills a desolation, his territory a home for beasts of the desert. If Edom thinks, though crushed, we can build the ruins again. Thus said the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And so they shall be known in the, as the region of wickedness, people damned forever of the Lord. Your eyes shall behold it, and you shall declare, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. All right, so let's reconstruct. How do the people feel about their lives right now? Just from this passage alone? They feel crummy. They feel incredibly unloved. Yes, the temple, the second temple is standing. But they're obviously suffering, as we'll see from the book, a lot of poverty is going on. They're still under Persian rule, and there's still no sign whatsoever that those Persians are going to go anywhere. There's not even a Zerubbabel to stake hopes on anymore. There's nothing. They're saying, you know, what kind of redemption is this? We have a temple. Some of us are here. Most of us are still there, right, in Shushan, in Bavel. We're out in the diaspora somewhere. They're not coming back. We feel unloved by God. And so what's God's rousing response? Of course I love you. How can I prove it to you? What's the proof? Huh? Look what happened to Adam. They're devastated forever. But you are still here. In other words, all God has to say about proof of love is that, thank God you're still here. Yes, downtrodden, poor, suffering, under political dominion. Okay, fine. Yeah, you're not in great shape. But you're here. Look at those Edomites. They got creamed and they're done. And they're, and they're never coming back. 
This is the best Malachi has to offer them. This is incredibly bleak. It's so depressing. It's incredibly bleak. That this is the proof of God's love. By the way, it's a miracle of history that we are here. I, I'm with them on this. Right? However, if you're dealing with despondent Jews in the Second Temple period, suffering like crazy, and they're told, God, proof of God's love is that you're here at all. It might have meant something. It might have really helped encourage them. But it certainly wasn't the big fish picture that they were hoping for. They thought this was going to be redemption. Haggai and Zechariah are like, this could be it. Malachi doesn't even talk about this could be it. He's like, this is what it is. But this is incredible. We're here. It's a much, much more sober look at the Second Temple period. Just a generation or two probably after Haggai. What I will tell you is that there was incredible poverty. These people were suffering big time. And most of Malachi is about condemning sins that relate to their impoverished state. One of them was the priests were corrupt, horribly corrupt. A majority of the book is about the corruption of these lousy priests. What they were doing was accepting defective animal sacrifices. The sacrificial service was on, and they were taking lame ones or... You know, otherwise mutilated ones, second-rate animals. About what year was this approximately? Ballpark 500-ish BCE. Okay. Ballpark. Second temple is standing, that's for sure. And it seems to be after Haggai and Zechariah by a generation or two because there's just no hope here. There's really just no hope. So even into the late 400, the early 400s? Maybe, yeah, like 480-ish would be fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Miriam? Now, the second, fast forward to... Okay. No, that was the point, right? It was a setup, right? There, the whole point is to make the rabbis look bad and get the Romans angry. It, it worked, right? Here, the priests are doing it. They're not doing it to appease some, you know, to try to take on some government. They're doing it because they're trying to. People are saving money. They're bringing blemished animals because they're cheaper. So Malachi goes on a major tirade against them. You're desecrating the temple. Don't bring animal sacrifices if you're not going to bring the good ones. Would you bring a gift like this to your governor? And if you wouldn't, the answer is no. Well, why are you bringing these things to God? So Malachi goes on after the kihunah. He laments. He says, oh, Kohanim are supposed to be the... Angels of God, they're supposed to be God's teachers, you know, the teachers of God's word, and that live a great life of character. All wonderful, but you guys are nothing like that at all. You're causing, you're causing harm by abusing the temple. So that's part A. Part B is condemnation of intermarriage. Widespread intermarriage has erupted in the, uh, in the community. This almost certainly links Malachi with the period of Ezra and Nehemiah, who we'll talk about in May. Ezra and Nehemiah, we can date them to the mid-5th century BCE. Ezra came in 458, Nehemiah was 445 BCE. And they also fight intermarriage, widespread intermarriage in the community. So Malachi, we can't perfectly date him, but it sounds like he must be in or slightly before that time. He's the only prophet who ever condemns intermarriage. Yeah, Steve. Uh, Hello. I, this is slightly off track, but uh, somebody brought this point up to me. I mean, he was arguing a point as far as conversion and intermarriage. Again, as you said, the argument was against intermarriage. 
So the simple answer to that would be very simple. Let's just have those that intermarry, have them convert. So instead, Ezra ends up sending him away. He said, that's proof that there was no such thing as conversion at that time. And he goes back to that. What do you think of that? We've got to wait till maybe when we talk about Ezra. <laughs> so... You know, it is off track. You know, it is yeah, off track for Malachi. So I want to. It's I wanna, an interesting point. It is. It is. It is. It is an important point. But let's let's okay, hold off sure. until May. Or talk about it privately right after tonight. Oh. That's fine too. But 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 for Malachi, okay. he's, that's not on his radar. He, he condemns it, and he's the only prophet who ever condemns intermarriage. Were the other prophets pro intermarriage? No. The reason why the other prophets never condemn it is because obviously it wasn't a problem in their time. Right? In other words, prophets are only going to speak to the things that are going on that they can see with their own eyes. Probably in Bagel, more so than in... No, in Israel also. Really? Yeah, that's where Malachi lives. Malachi is in Israel, he's, he's, he's watching the temple, and he sees intermarriage all around. Now, there are two leading reasons why people might have been intermarrying back then. One is that the Jews no longer felt special. It's all part of the unloved state that they're in. They say, look, God has rejected us. Why hold back? Let's marry whoever we want to marry. Right? So part of them is simply they have given up on the unique God-Israel covenant. So that seems to be one piece of what's motivating intermarriage. Right? Just the idea that they no longer feel special. They don't feel that uniqueness anymore. And if you don't feel that uniqueness, hey, all is fair game. The other side of it is economics. You know, a lot of them were marrying non-Jews who were wealthier and more connected out there. When there's poverty, this was a great way to move up the social ladder. So I felt this is the way you could you would make it. If you can marry a well into a well-connected non-Israelite family, or at this point we could even say non-Jewish, well, that was a great way of moving up. So they're all related. This terrible economic oppression, the fact that there's drought, famine, poverty, the fact that we're under Persian dominion, is causing everything to go to pot. All of a sudden. The priesthood is accepting defective temples. The temple service is not running properly. People are intermarrying in a rampant sort of way, causing Malachi to launch a major tirade against that. People are not giving, there's something called ma'aser. What's ma'aser? Tithing. Tithing. 10% of your crop yield. supposed to go to the Kohanim Levi, and ma'aser specifically to the tribe of Levi. Well, a lot of people were, were cheating on their taxes, shall we say. Just a lot of people were not... Cheating on the sacrifice. Yeah, everybody's cheating. Everybody is doing it in part to save money, but in the end, that means that they're all betraying the covenant. So Malachi goes on all, after all of that. So I'm not trying to justify what they were doing. What they did was terrible. They were breaking every law you could think of, and they would justify it by saying, look, we just can't afford to live a good Jewish life. Think about how much price of kosher meat and Pesach. Ooh, forget about it, right? It, it's tough. So, but for them, it was crippling. So much so that they simply were giving up on the basics. The temple was being desecrated. Intermarriage was now rampant. People are cutting corners in every imaginable regard. And then comes the most demoralizing part of the whole book to me. As demoralizing as that all was. Source number 10. You have wearied the Lord with your talk. God is getting sick and tired of your complaining, Malachi says. But you ask... By what have we wearied him? <laughs> How are we making God so sick and tired of us? By saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and in them he delights, or else, where is the God of justice? These are the righteous people talking. Here are the people holding on to Torah, who are listening to the prophets, and they can't help but notice, the more you listen to the prophets, the worse off is your bank account. 
these other guys who are betraying the covenant right and left, they're moving up. They're doing better. They're bringing their inferior sheep to the temple, which gives them the good stuff. They sell that on the open market for a much, much prettier penny. Right? If people are intermarrying and moving up the social ladder, they're saying, we're marrying Jews, but look, we're suffering and they're moving up. There was an unbelievable... Where's the evidence for, that? Huh? Where's the evidence for that economic difference between non-Jews? It wasn't all non-Jews and all Jews, but definitely part of this seems to have been well-connected families in that era, as we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. There, again, it's not only economic that's driving this. Some of it is just that the Jews stopped feeling chosen. They stopped feeling unique. It was a general despair because we were suffering so much. But part of it was some of them were moving into very well-connected families. Not all of them. Not all intermarriage is driven by that. But some of it seems to have been. So now the righteous people are looking around and saying, hmm, the more faithful we are to the Torah, the bottom, the more at the bottom we are. This is something new that has never happened before in all of Jewish history. In the good old days, even right before the destruction of the temple, if you ask Jeremiah, why is the temple being destroyed? It's because enough people are wicked. doesn't mean that everybody has to be wicked, but enough people are wicked that a decree has been sealed. But it was ne- there never had been a moment in Jewish history where the more righteous you were, the more you were going to suffer. We never had that before in our history. Prophets never describe that situation. They describe suffering, and they'll say it's because of the wicked among us. Okay, it doesn't mean everybody's wicked. It doesn't, you know, there's still some unfairness there. They all grant those points. But it's never been that the more wicked you are, the better off you are across the boards. And the more righteous you are, the worse off you are across the boards. That's what Malachi's generation was witnessing. So Malachi can't say the reason why we're suffering is because we're sinning. The righteous people are saying, wait a second. We're looking around here, and what we notice is that all the wicked people are doing great, or at least greater than we are. And because we're holding on, we're faithful to the Torah, we're the ones who are suffering. That never happened before. And so what's Malachi's answer going to be? They talk about pressure on the prophet. What's he going to say that's going to appease them? And he goes on again, a few verses later, and he brings up the same issue up again. You have spoken hard words against me, said the Lord. But you ask, what have we been saying among, us, among ourselves and against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his charge and walking in abject awe of the Lord of hosts? What, we're, we're suffering because of our religiousness. And you shall come to see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between him who has served the Lord and him who has not served him. Malachi, I shouldn't have dot dotted out it as much as I did. Malachi says that there will be a messianic, what we would call a messianic future. That's when things will be fair. Meaning, you're right, things are very unfair now. But we should still be keeping the Torah. That's 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 our unique and eternal covenant with God. It is, but do it. And that's what Malachi is saying. Malachi is saying our covenant with God is eternal. Our job is to keep the Torah. And in the Mashiach age, that's when things finally will be fair. Here's the first time in all of, all of Jewish history that a prophet is just outright saying, you're right, the world is unfair right now. Stop complaining about it. Our job is to keep the Torah. There's no, he's not holding out any promises. Oh, tomorrow things will be better and then you'll see. He's saying, and off in the distant future, he's not saying Mashiach is coming tomorrow. Off in some distant future, that's when things will finally be righted. 
This is an incredibly new answer to an old problem. Right? He's not making up the messianic belief. He's just using the messianic belief to say that's the first time that things will really be fair. I make no guarantees of fairness before that, says God. So God says, stop complaining. Keep the Torah. And that's all Malachi has to say to the people. It's incredibly bleak. But it's also very realistic. It's a very good way of describing what our role is to play in our unique covenant with God. And then finally, you come down to the very last three verses of the book. Be mindful of the teaching, the Hebrew word is Torah, of my servant Moses, whom I charged at Chorev with laws and rules for all Israel. Keep the Torah, he says. Lo, I will send the prophet Eliyahu, Elijah, to you before the coming of that awesome, fearful day of the Lord. He shall reconcile parents with children and children with their parents, so that when I come, I do not strike the whole land with utter destruction. So these are the last words of prophecy. And the last word is destruction. Lovely. Right? Tradition doesn't allow us to do that, by the way. What do we do? Right. Our, we have a rule. Our, we have a traditional rule. Whenever we recite a, a prophetic text as a haftarah, let's say, and, and a biblical book closes on a bleak word or note, what do you do? What you do is you read the second to last verse again. So we actually read this as a haftarah, Shabbat HaGadol. Most communities read this passage in Malachi, the Shabbat immediately preceding Pesach. So what the haftarah reader generally does across the boards is you read these three verses, the last three verses of the haftarah, and then you have to go back and read verse 23 again. There actually are four biblical books where tradition demands that we're not allowed to end on a bleak note or a bleak word. What are they? One of them is Malachi. One is the book of Isaiah. One is the book of Kohelet, and one is the book of Echa that we recite on Tisha B'Av. And it's all for the same reason. We must recite the second to last verse again so that we end on a more positive note because we're positive people. right? Even though the prophet felt comfortable ending on a bleak note. But tradition won't allow it. right? Tradition says absolutely not. We must go back and repeat. Bless those rabbis. I like their attitude. So, and that's what it's really all about. You know, they understand that our tradition is fundamentally one of hope. So even when a prophet ends his message on a really lousy note like destruction, we're not allowed to stop there. We have to go back and read 23. So first I'll read it, then we'll talk about it. Right? I have to follow the rabbis here. Right? Lo, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the coming of the awesome, fearful day of the Lord. That's how we do it. Okay, good. Elias? Is this the only time that one prophet quotes another? Oh, mentions another one by name? Yeah. Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah chapter 26. There's... The prophet doesn't quote Micha, but people in a trial with Jeremiah quote the prophet Micha from Treasar there. That is the only place in what we call the later prophets where an earlier prophet is quoted by name. So here, this is even more fascinating because this, this you know, plays off of the mystery of, of the parting of Elijah the prophet, of course. Right? The idea that he didn't quite die in the usual sense, shall we say. He, chariot, fiery chariot comes and picks him up and off he goes. And this, of course, gives a lot of fuel to the idea that wherever he went, he somehow stayed alive and then continued to live. And that he will come back one day to herald the Messianic era. Right? So it's it's rooted in the mysterious parting of, of Elijah in the first place, but this prophecy obviously takes it and really runs with it. And then, of course, there's a whole rabbinic lore about Eliyahu's role in the Beit Midrash, right, where he actually shows up among among people. So this prophecy, many commentators already jump on the bandwagon here and say, Malachi is conscious of being that these are the last words of prophecy. 
And so he's doing what the prophet Joel did, but much more explicitly. What he's saying is, prophecy is about to die. What we only have going forward is the Torah. Whereas now we have our sacred text. That is our covenant with God. Prophecy is checking out for a while. It's the last sparks. And what we have, what we have to keep us going in our connection with God is the Torah, of course. But in the future, prophecy will come back. When the Messianic age comes, the first thing that you'll notice is we have a prophet who's bringing it back. Elijah the prophet himself will be there to herald the Messianic era. So it gives hope, not only for the future in terms of paving the way for the next era, which becomes the era of the rabbis, trying to, people who are scholars in Torah and tradition who are going to use those sacred texts to connect to God instead, but a reminder that there will be, there will be prophecy down the line. Rav Soloveitchik didn't want to stop there because Rav Soloveitchik seldom stops there, right? So in his Lonely Man of Faith, he just looks at the, the way that our Tanakh is structured, and this is a good segue for next week. Right after the books of the prophets end, come the book of Psalms. We'll talk about it next week. Prophecy, the whole nature of prophecy, is God's voice to people. That's what prophecy is, right? God is communicating to human beings, or very special human beings. Psalms is the only book in the entire Tanakh which is people's voice to God. It's the only book. That's what prayer is all about. So Soloveitchik jumps all over that one. And he says that if God is going to take away our prophecy, we're going to pray. We're never going to end the God-human relationship or dialogue, even though it's really not quite a dialogue. But all the same, if we can't have prophecy anymore, if that's going to stop, we need to go to the Psalms. We need to be able to have that relationship. If God won't talk to us, well, we're going to have to talk to Him. And this sets up the transition from the books of the prophets that we've been doing for a while, for over a year now together, and moving into the Psalms, and moving into the Ketuvim, what we call the Holy Writings. The Holy Writings, which we'll begin to talk about next week, is a really miscellaneous. There's all kinds of stuff in there. The Psalms are primarily prayers, people to God. You have some wisdom books that are just one wise person talking to other people, hoping that they will listen and become wise also. You still have a prophet in there, Daniel. The book of Daniel is a prophetic book that's in there. You have some history books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And then you have the Megillot, which are so much fun. And, and, and we'll talk about all of these in the coming months, and that I look forward to doing with you. So have a wonderful, wonderful evening. And then, yeah, well, I almost feel like you have to have a party. I will, I will tell you when, when